obviously don't ask for completely unreasonable, uh, ambiguous sort of grayscale um, elements or KPIs. We're, we're very, you know, numbers driven. So we're, we're not going to say, oh, we're not going to have a clause so fluffy that says everything's got to go well for the next 12 months. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll make it as specific as possible to be fair on the seller um, because at the end of the day, the sellers have worked incredibly hard to build their business. You know, I've built a business. I know it's very emotional and you see everything and you're the best person to run that business. So we, we try and make things as specific as possible because what we don't want is a dispute and then we have to go to court and we have to argue something that's very fluffy and and, and not specific. So we do go to great lengths. Obviously, you, can, you can't always avoid it, um, again, because of different interpretations and perspectives, but we'll try our damn sight hardest to you know make that as clear as possible and, and reasonable as well hi there and welcome back to another edition of built to sell radio the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company i'm the executive producer colin morgan and today on the show we are back inside the mind of an acquire as john is joined by the founder of private equity firm winch and co nathan winch now, you're likely being approached by private equity groups all the time, and most have a very similar investment criteria. So I've linked up to Winch & Co's investment criteria to give you an idea as to what these kind of companies look for. So I have added that in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Now, before we get into today's episode, I just want to quickly shout out Fave 300, who left us a wonderful review on Apple Podcast. He stated, great show at a great time. Love the stories and advice. Thank you. And uh, Fave 300, thank you so much for leaving that wonderful review. And if you want to leave a review just like Fave did, then I will share a link in the show notes section over at builttocell.com, which will take you over to Apple Podcasts where you can do so. So thank you so much for your continued support of the podcast. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Nathan who, after selling his first company in 2017, was inspired to become an investor. And since then, Nathan and his team have acquired over 20 companies with 18 successful exits to date. Here to share with John what he looks for in an acquisition is Nathan Winch. Enjoy. Nathan Winch, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, thanks for having me, John. Great You're way here. too young to be a private equity guru, so I don't know how you made the money to become an <laughs> investor. What was the backstory here? Tell me about Winch Pharma and how it all started. So I started um, in business quite a while ago now, actually. Um, and so I was, to, I was at university studying um, uh, molecular biology, of all things. Um, and I'd sort of had an entrepreneurial spark from a young age, I think, but, uh, you know, started my school's first newspaper and all that sort of good stuff. Um, but went into uni um, and I worked for a uh, hospital um, as part of my gap year. And uh, I was looking into doing research and things like that. But part of what I did was procurement for the uh, for my department. And uh, I bought from the uh, supply chains that were made available for us um, as part of the hospital. Um, and it was lots of, well, it wasn't lots of, it was a, a, a few private companies uh, that sold into, um, into our hospital. 
And uh, I noticed that things were really expensive and it was because it was a monopoly of the same companies again and again that sold all these different consumables that I was buying for the department. Um, and, uh, and I thought, well, how difficult can it be to sell into um, the healthcare system? Uh, so I, I started looking at different options. I looked at high turnover products, things like hand sanitizer, um, you know, cleaning consumables, that sort of stuff. Um, and I looked at bidding on a contract. Didn't really know what I was doing, John. Um, I'll be honest. Uh, but I, um, I started a business, got some colleagues together. Uh, we bid on a contract and, and we won it actually. So we won a share of a huge, uh, 30 million, uh, contract, which, you know, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any uh, huge experience in running a business, um, but I, I I knew the lingo. I knew the lingo to co- sort of bid on these contracts. So we won this contract, uh, and actually, um, it, so I had to kind of scramble around to find investors, uh, which I did, um, and uh, and sort of grew the business. Um, and it was a tough start because obviously there was lots of learning curves and selling to um, to the healthcare system particularly in our country, is, is quite quite difficult. So to be on there, we were probably one of the first smaller companies to, to be on the supply chain at the time. So uh, so that's how I got going. I, I grew that business um, and then, uh, to cut a long story short, ended up selling it to one of our chemical suppliers who wanted to get into the healthcare system. And the quickest way for them to do that was to uh, was to buy us up. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I was doing some research online. I, I got something, um, and and this could be wrong. So tell me if it is. But but the sale price around seventy thousand k, UK pounds plus another forty four thousand in an earnout. Is that sound about right? Or or yeah, so there- that yeah, that was the first one. So um, so they had to publish that because they were a PLC, so they were a public company, yeah, uh, publicly traded company. Um, and there was a little bit more involved in that but ultimately that was the price yeah so that was the first real sale of a business that i had um and obviously off the back of that what i did was you know bought a nice house bought a nice car um and uh, and sort of enjoy myself for for all of two weeks before getting <laughs> bored um and then uh, decided well actually uh, the money is in selling a business not running a business so i noticed that from my experience, selling that business for that money, it wasn't a terribly big business, John, um, but I made more money in, on that day than the sort of the last couple of years of running the business. So I thought, well, there's something in this, you know. So uh, following on from that, I started another couple of businesses, won some contracts, sold those two privately, um, and then sort of got into this chain of, well, actually, I I, I want to sell things. That's what I want to do. Um, and then obviously the, the next step was to try and cut out the long-winded starting something and growing it. And then is, is there a way to shorten that by maybe buying things to sell them? And that's where it grew into into what it is today. Interesting. So it was that that very early success of of selling something, making some money and and realizing that it was a lot more than you made day to day that sort of the light bulb went off thinking it's in the actual selling that that the money is made. Interesting. And so you you took you kind of parlayed these funds and and started buying businesses. What was your in your first acquisition, what was your 
like what were the terms you used? Did, I mean, did you just plunk down cash? Did you use debt financing? Did you get the seller to kind of carry a note or a vendor take back? Or like, how did you structure it? Because buying a business for a lot of people listening, this sounds really expensive. <laughs> They're like, that would be, you know, like untenable, un, un, unmanageable. But you were starting from a relatively small capital base. So how did you start structuring these deals in order to acquire companies? Yeah, interesting. So um, probably a, a mix of all of those things, actually. Um, so the first one, so, so after I'd sold the first two businesses, I was starting with some, it was okay capital. Like, like you say, it's not earth shattering. Um, and uh, what I did was with the first acquisition, there was an element of my own money, but it was it was very little to start with. So having run my business, multiple businesses, I'd built up relationships with banks, uh, private lenders, um, you know, smaller banks uh, that, that are willing to do more riskier stuff, you know, with entrepreneurs. So using a lot of those contacts, using a lot of that um, leverage, uh, I was able to pair that up with the resources that I had and and do the first acquisition, which uh, was in the same space, actually, uh, John, it was in the uh, cleaning consumable space. Uh, so we bought that up, um, did some interesting things to it, got some NHS contracts, uh, and then we uh, and then we sold it on. So I was able to uh, put together in my head, right, the model is, right, how do I cut out this? I need to buy and then sell. And then we proved the model with the first sort of you know, makeshift uh, acquisition, which which actually went very well. Interesting. I want to get into that for sure, but I'd love to dig in further on the the financing piece. So, so small banks um, yes. and, and private banks. So, it's funny. I know a guy who does something like this. I don't know him well enough to really dig into the details of it, but but my understanding is he will lend money to entrepreneurs who want to buy a company in return for a higher interest rate than you would get say at Barclays or some you know big top tier bank. So these are some of the people that you were going to saying like lend me some money. I'll pay a little more than I would pay if I was to go to Barclays. Uh, but in return you've got to give you know you've got to give me the money that you wouldn't or Barclays may not ordinarily finance. Is, was that is, so those are what you mean by the private investors or private sort of smaller banks yeah that's right so uh, so they'd lend me money um you know they they gear me to be able to afford these businesses that I wouldn't otherwise be able to afford purely with equity so um because we we don't have well I don't have any investors so I've got to finance these things somehow so I, it, it's you it's usually along those lines actually John yeah um and then because uh, we, we don't do a lot with high street banks because they uh they tend to look for safer stuff. And what we do is obviously risky. So yeah, it's the smaller banks and it's the private individuals that, um, you know, like to get into this stuff for a higher yeah. return, which is which is what we do. But because of the money we make uh, on what we do, buying and selling, we're happy to pay those higher returns because actually for us, for what we do, that's reasonable, you know, and leaves us with a, with a you know, a margin. And these private individuals, when they invest... Are they simply getting interest for their money or are they getting interest 
and warrants or interest in you know options or did they, or is it simply that they're getting a higher interest rate for their the money they give you? Yeah, they they just get a higher interest rate. Yeah. And so, what would the typical like what would a typical interest rate be that a private individual might might demand relative to prime rate? So, if prime rates at at three percent, let's say, or five percent, what what premium over top of that are you paying to a private investor? So with the private individuals, it's usually uh, 15 to 20%. Wow. Um, and with uh, the private banks, you're looking around 10%, which, you know, 7 to 10%, something like that, depending on the financial product that we use um, to obviously, you know, acquire the business. So they are much higher rates. Um, but like I say, when it, in our experience doing what we do, it's actually reasonable when you compare it against the money we're able to make with the, you know, with with, with the sale piece. So, uh, yeah, you, you're looking in those regions certainly for for what we do. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you pay them back? Because that sounds like, in particular, a private investor looking for fifteen or twenty percent interest. That's going to chew through a lot, even a profitable business that's going to chew through a big chunk of their profits, even wipe their profits out. So w- when you look at a business, like how do you know you're going to be able to pay that kind of interest? Like, are you are you seeing quick wins that are like, I, yeah, I can immediately eliminate that cost, which will enable me to, you know, is that the kind of thinking or what? No, it is. It is. So um, obviously that's going on to the next piece, which is the consolidation and the, you know, the arbitrage between, what uh, a seller might see as, as an issue and what we might see as an issue. So uh, sometimes we, we always do buy profitable businesses, um, us in particular, um, and we'll, we'll obviously assess that business based on the financial products that we want to use to acquire it. So we'll say, right, can we afford this business? Um, and how much, how much equity are we going to contribute to the deal? And how does that sort of, you know, move the scale in terms of how much debt we use, uh, what cash flow we'll need to service that debt um, and all the rest of it. So it, it's a it's a calculation uh, that we make to an affordability test, essentially, to say, right, we, we, what way are we going to finance this business? And can we and this business afford to pay that level of financing? Um, and, and what is the exit strategy? Because sometimes... Um, on the higher risk stuff, we might we might get into debt that's actually more than the business itself can afford to pay. So we contribute towards the payments, but that's only if we can see a, a much bigger win or if it's a strategic uh, move that we want to make, John. So uh, there's a lot a lot of factors go into it. Yeah. So if it, let's just use round numbers, and and this will be a hypothetical example, yeah. but I think it'll help me get my head around it. So let's imagine. You you see a business uh, and you want to buy it and you think it's worth a million pounds. Let's just just for round numbers. In a typical deal, again, I, I realize every deal is going to be slightly different, but in a typical deal, what percentage of the million pounds are you putting in in, in equity versus what percentage would you put in from outside debt, i.e. private banks or private investments? And then what percentage would you ask the seller to sort of carry as a seller note? Uh, would those be the three forms of financing that you would yeah, typically the, use? So those are the three main forms of financing. So we we typically always have um, a sort of a deferred 
amount of payment or a seller note. Um, the reason we do that is um, obviously it helps to finance the business, but the main reason is to obviously enforce warranties on that business. So the seller will give us certain information that obviously has to be correct um, in order for us to do our job. So, you know, certain key client contracts lasting an X number of years or something like that. So mm-hmm. so that, that's mainly what the, the seller note's there for. And, and, and that typically is for us, a minimum of of 30 35% so we'll oh, wow. say so right okay so significant amount yeah 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 because um particularly with the types of businesses that we acquire uh, we need to know that there's you know we need to know that those warranties will hold um so we typically do that um and then we might say that uh if on a good day we might get away with 5 to 10% of our own equity and then mm-hmm. the rest the sort of the bit in between uh, will be our finance partners that very kindly help us out um, on the back of our analysis of the business and the uh, and the affordability. Yeah, that makes sense. And so let me dig into the, the seller financing for a little bit. So this is the seller of the business. You say to them, uh, you know, let's say it's a million pounds. We're gonna we're gonna give you six hundred and fifty thousand pounds up front, but then we want you to take the three hundred and fifty thousand pounds that you're leaving on the table. Uh, in the form of a, a debt to the business, which we're going to pay off over time. Uh, a few questions to that. What's the interest rate typically that they get if they're going to leave their 350 in? And um, what recourse do they have as the seller if, if, Winch, for example, stopped paying or didn't want to pay or whatever. Like, do they have any sort of recourse? If if you know what I'm saying, I'm assuming they sit below or behind in the capital structure the the finance partner. Like, they would get paid back first. I'm assuming. Yeah. So um, it'll it'll depend on the business. So with with the finance partners, what we tend to do is uh, their collateral will be built up as uh, a mixture of assets in the target business and assets on our existing balance sheet. So they might say, right, what, what, what plant and machinery have you got? What property have you got? What, what can we take security against? So that the, yep. the 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 private banks, the finance partners, they'll say they'll want collateral. With the um, with the seller, um, it, it's the same thing really. Um, apart from they'll typically have a charge or or some sort of debenture or, or um, over the business or over the um, you know the 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 sales vehicle that we put in place to, to purchase the business um, in order to safeguard a security for their payment. So sometimes it might be set deferred where we'll say, right, we'll give you the 350 over a year or two years or something like that. Um, we uh, we don't usually do earnouts because uh, we have a good, we, we always make sure that there's an incumbent management team in place for the businesses that we buy. And I guess that will go on later to what we look for. Um, but, but for us, the business has to run without the owner. So we don't really need an earnout unless there's a particular, you know, a, a strong sort of customer concentration. So there might be a particular client that makes up a large percentage of the revenue of the business. Well, we might say, well, then some of the, some of the, um, deferred consideration for the business might be contingent on that contract lasting X period of time. Uh, so, so there's, there's a lot of things that we'll build in there. Um, in terms of interest, uh, we, we, uh, it's usually uh, the, obviously there's the interest of the finance partners, uh, but with the sellers, um, depending on the amount that we hold back, 
Sometimes there may not be any interest if it's a smaller amount of uh, seller note. If it's a larger amount, uh, you know, it's typically base rate or the rate of inflation or something or other, which means that they're not losing anything from Got us it. holding the money back. So they they get what we originally agreed, you know, it, as a as a real time and sort of over rate. what period of time would tip would be typical? Uh, to to three years maximum. Three years okay. maximum. So just to just to play this out, um, let's say we ask them to leave th- you know three hundred and sixty thousand dollars or thousand pounds in the business, thirty six percent over thirty six months. So we're gonna we're gonna pay you ten thousand pounds every month for the next thirty six months. Am I getting my math right? That's right. Or thousand pounds, three hundred sixty thousand. Yeah, something like that. Uh, it doesn't matter. I'm not very good at math, as we have established. <laughs> But my point is it's divided in 36 equal installments over the, the 36 months. And it may include a little bit of interest, but it's not substantial. You're not giving them prime plus 10 or something like that. No. It's, it's, no. it's, it's an inflation rate. Got it. But that may be, this is curious for me. So the, it may be the, the repayment of that debt may be contingent on, on them as the seller doing something. So it could be maintaining that client relationship such that they stay on for the three years or, you know, passing over the keys to the warehouse or there may be things that they need to do in order to, to, to uh, receive that debt, that debt payment, if you will. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, And it's, it's very, um, it's very rare that the business is so clean that the uh, payments are just over a set date. There's usually some element of clawback. I mean, clawback's a harsh word, but uh, we, we obviously we as investors buying that business need to know that the the, the assets are, are sound. So it, it's it's just a way of us. I mean, if if we were to pay everything up front and then we were to have a dispute over a customer contract, it's much more difficult for us to chase money we've spent rather than hold back money that we owe. So that's the way we sort of look at it. Is is that it's easier for us to say, uh, Mister Seller or or Mrs. Seller, you've you know you've um, this hasn't happened in the way that you say. So the costs associated with that, obviously, you'll pay that, but in the means of us not paying you the same amount off the off the loan note essentially how do you avoid um subjective interpretations of the of the agreement like i used an example of like did you pass the keys over to the warehouse that's that's objective right it's like did you do it or not if if not do so and we'll pay you like that's very objective where you know the retention of a client. I can imagine being a little bit subjective in the sense that, well, we retain them, but they they drop their volume, or we retain them, but there was a like a different person who took over the account, so we lost a little bit of revenue, or we retain them, um, you know, but they they were in fact sold to another company, so you know it's a different business now, or they're different. Like there's, it gets a little more subjective when it's like something is. It's like retaining a client. How do you avoid or can you avoid the subjective interpretation of the agreement and make it binary? Like, do you make efforts to do that? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, we do make efforts to do that. We obviously don't ask for completely unreasonable, uh, ambiguous sort of grayscale um, elements or KPIs. We're, we're very 
you know, numbers driven. So we're, we're not going to say, oh, we're not going to have a clause so fluffy that says everything's got to go well for the next 12 months. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll make it as specific as possible to be fair on the seller. Um, because at the end of the day, the sellers have worked incredibly hard to build their business. You know, I've built a business. I know it's very emotional and you see everything and you're the best person to run that business. So we, we try and make things as specific as possible because what we don't want is a dispute. And then we have to go to court and we have to argue something that's very fluffy and and, and not specific. So we do go to great lengths. Obviously, you, can, you can't always avoid it, um, again, because of different interpretations and perspectives, but we'll try our damn sight hardest to you know make that as clear as possible and, and reasonable as well are you able to share names aside obviously we'll keep it anonymous but an example of a of a, of a sale that did not go well that there was room for interpretation and that it didn't necessarily uh, uh, go in in as well as as hoped and therefore the seller didn't get all or some of their funds uh yes there is a very specific example i'm just wondering how much of it i can share um so uh yes so we bought a business so trying to keep it as 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 um general as possible so we bought a business and it relies on a certain amount of machinery um but this machinery is regulated here in this country um so you have to keep up with certain um you know, maintenance and 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 checks and things to ensure that that mach- you're allowed to use that machinery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what happened was uh, we we had warranties to say, well, this machinery um, has to um, you know you have to have kept up with all of the routine checks and whatever whatever else that that this you know that this uh, infrastructure needs for us to continue to use it. Um, and it turned out the seller hadn't kept up with that. So what we saw there was we had the, um, you know, the regulatory bodies that be uh, reduce the amount of machinery that we're able to use, which meant obviously a reduction in revenue and all the rest of it. So they claimed obviously the reduction in revenue was because X, Y, Z, you know, the 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 economic climate. And we kind of said, well, no, actually, we we can't sell as much because we don't have as much production capacity. Therefore, uh, we you know as a result of your regulatory um, you know non compliance, should we call it? So that was a little bit of. Whilst I don't necessarily see that as very ambiguous, I guess that's where I, you know I'm not right all the time, and and they kind of say, well, this, that, the other. So sometimes it can be um, it can seem to be clear but sometimes like you say um if you be too objective it, you know that the seller might have different ideas i mean we ultimately did resolve it um but but it it, it was kind of drawn out and uh, we had to uh you know go to mediation with solicitors and, and lawyers so uh so it wasn't as clear cut as particularly i thought um but that gives you a, a hope a, a bit of an example yeah, yeah, hope yeah it wasn't yeah. too it wasn't too broad stroke um but just as a just as an example from from our experience with an acquisition what, what, what would you have spent on solicitors and mediators to to get to resolution on that on that disagreement uh, probably fifty or sixty thousand pounds or seventy thousand yeah. dollars for you know what's yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's not a it's not a small uh, measly sum. Yeah, yeah. Which obviously yeah. came out of the costs of this of the loan note. 
Oh, it got it, it out of their 35%. That's right, yeah. So we so yeah. obviously we had it. We it didn't go to court. It didn't get that bad. But obviously through the mediation and the settlement, you know, we it would have been harder for us to, to, to get that money back from a seller had we paid them up front. So that is a very good example of us enforcing warranties using that that deferred element of uh, of payment. I see. Got it. Got it. So it came out of the 350 and, and, and the hypothetical 350 that yes. I was using. Yeah. As an example. <laughs> yeah. That's helpful. Go If we could go back to the financing for a second. So you mentioned somewhere in the kind of 40 to 60% of a deal would be financed through private bank or private individual with this higher interest rate. And they would they would get collateral. And so did I hear you correct in saying that they would get collateral? They they might get collateral in the business that you're acquiring, like a piece of machinery or something. They would get in, in the event of a non-payment, they would they would get recourse to that. Did I also hear you say that they would also potentially get collateral on, on other winch investments that fall outside of the one company you're acquiring at that time? Is that is that was that? Did I hear that correctly? That's right. So, okay. um, so when so when I say the equity that we put into the deal, uh, we could always get out of putting any capital into these deals, John. But what that would entail is obviously uh, the private lender giving lending to us that element that we put in. But in order to do that, they'd have to take collateral over something else. So let's say the business doesn't have sufficient assets to leverage to cover the whole purchase price so what we do is if 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 that was the strategy and, and let's say we wanted to save money to invest in the business post acquisition so therefore we don't want to contribute to the purchase price we'll have to put some of our other assets up for collateral to be able to cover that so there's always so the equity doesn't always have to be uh, cash it could be that they'll take security over you know parts of our property portfolio or other you know our infrastructure or other uh, machinery or whatever else we've got in order to 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 make that up. So so the equity doesn't always have to be cash, um, uh, and sometimes the the assets you know in the business won't suffice. So we have to make up the rest. And what about a guarantee? Do you? I'm not sure how it works in the UK. I, I'm I know in Canada, the banks like I have friends who run businesses where. They'll turn over ten million dollars, couple million dollars in profit, and they still have a personal guarantee on an operating line of two hundred grand. Like it's it's all it's really hard to get a Canadian bank to release you of a personal guarantee on a business operating line. It's different in the United States. I dare say it's different in the UK. So what is it like in the UK? Like, do you personally have a, a guarantee when you? take money from either a, a small private bank or a small private investor? Like, can they go after your house, basically, is what I'm getting at? Uh, yes. So you'll struggle to find lenders, particularly in the UK, um, that won't want some form of personal guarantee. Now, um, my board of directors typically don't give guarantees, but me being the key person in the business, I tend to have to do that. Not all the time, but I tend to have to do that. And it is usually limited um, because we're spending millions and, and millions of pounds. Um, they, they tend not to, well, sometimes they do, but they tend not to um, have the personal guarantee 
for the full amount. So it might be a limited amount. They might look at your personal assets and liabilities and say, right, you can afford to have this much. Um, so we're going to, you know, we're going to hold you to that. So absolutely that, that does happen. And it's quite common um, over here as well. And so, so let's way? say of the hypothetical million and where I'm borrowing, let's say 600, they might say, well, a hundred of that is going to be on a personal guarantee. Uh, we'll take a charge over certain assets in the business um, and we may take a charge on, on some of our main balance sheet assets or we may not because we may be able to make it up with the rest of it. But yeah, they, 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 uh, they would, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what's that like having a personal guarantee? I'm scratching my head because I'm so risk averse that I've never we've I've never had debt in any of the businesses that I've been involved in. And so even the thought of having a personal guarantee on it just makes my stomach turn. So I couldn't do it because I just don't have the wiring for that. But I'm curious. For you, it must it must be. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what is the what is the emotional feeling of having a personal guarantee on a business you don't necessarily run day to day? Because as you say, you buy businesses that have a management team. Although you think you know you can obviously improve the business, or you wouldn't buy it. But you, there are managers involved; they're making the day to day decisions. Yet here's Nathan Winch, you know, the bank saying, no, no, if things go sideways, we're coming after you personally. Like, what's that like? Um, I'll be honest, it doesn't really phase me. I don't know why. I, I must be wired up wrong then, John. That's the case. <laughs> no, no, that's <laughs> but um, but it's it, I guess it it was different back then. So I I probably I mean, people obviously say I'm somewhat of an entrepreneur. I I, I don't believe I am as much anymore, um, or maybe I am, I don't know. But I think in the earlier days, it, I'd just take anything, right? Because I didn't really have much to lose, especially mm. when I started. Uh, so as time's gone on, and obviously we've built the assets of the business, I've built my own personal assets, I think it becomes a calculated um, risk. So I'll say, right, what what am I, what is the business worth and what am I worth? And can I carry that person guarantee? How many other person guarantees have I got? Because the, the, there are many. Um, and I, and I kind of think, right, so if this goes wrong, I can do this, this, and this. And it sort of all plays out in my head, you know, best case, worst case, and likely case. And I'll say, right, what, what does that look like for me? And if it's not too disastrous, then uh, obviously I'll, I'll go with it. Or if I'm particularly confident that we can do X, Y, and Z with the business, and actually I might not be in this debt for a very long time, then, you know, that helps as well. But it's, um, over time, it's become just a necessary evil, if I'm being perfectly mm -hmm. honest with you. And I think, you know, we've had the success now. We've had the failures and we've, and those, you know, there's been personal guarantees involved with those failures, but they've, you know, I've always had the contingencies there to make sure we can cover that or the relationships with the finance partners and particularly the private banks are in such a way now that we, we sort of have our blueprint, this is what goes wrong. So this is what we're going to do if it goes wrong. And this is how I'm going to pay you back. And I think if you can do that, then, 
you can't really go too far wrong. Plus, there's a lot of things that have got to go wrong before a personal guarantee is, is acted upon. Um, and typically in the UK, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's more of a it's more of a deterrent than something that the banks will act on, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. they'll say, right, well, we'll have a £200,000 personal guarantee on you. Um, you owe us... 3 million, but actually the assets in the business are 7 million or something like that. So, you know, a lot would have to happen before they'd sort of break through to, to having to do anything with PG. So, so there's that element as well. So I think all of that together, um, may, I wouldn't say I'm comfortable with it, but, but it's, it's part of the deal, you know? Mm-hmm. Necessary evil. You mentioned that you buy businesses with an existing management team and one of your criteria for buying a business is to ensure that it operates without the owner. That's right. How do you evaluate the business's dependency on its owner or lack thereof? Well, we don't always get it right. Um, so we will look at the business. Uh, we'll look at what's involved. We'll visit the business many times before the actual day of purchase. Um, you know, and at any point, we're ready to back out if we see something nasty or something that doesn't make sense. Um, and typically, you know, being completely honest and candid, that there's always an element of owner operation, you know, even for much larger businesses, you know, and I'm talking businesses of hundreds of millions, there's always a, some element of owner operation, whether it's with a key client or whether it's, you know, some, I don't know, proprietary knowledge or something. There's always an element. So what? So we're not, I guess it's a bit too clear cut to say we look for uh, businesses that can operate without the owners. We look for businesses that uh, where the, the owner operation element is small and can be mitigated completely. So, um, you know, we've never found, we've ne- well, in, in our experience, I've never bought a business where, the owner can leave on day one and, and have no input whatsoever. Even if even if they never work in the business and they're on holiday all the time, there'll still be something that they have to do, maybe once or twice a year. Or that, you know, or maybe they've got access to, I don't know, um, you know, communications or telephone, mobile accounts or something like that. There's good there's always something. Or perhaps they're the only ones that deal with the banking or something. So so we we just look to kind of make that as minimal as possible, but you can never get away from it. Um and that's that's how we we just evaluate over time and look at the business and and ask the difficult questions as well. Like what kind of questions might you ask in the in the process of evaluating a business for its dependency on an owner? Like if you were evaluating my business, like what kind of questions might you ask me to gauge how dependent it is on me? Yeah, so I'd I'd look at how much time they spend in the business. So I'd say, well, how often do you come into work? Um, what was the last client that you onboarded? Uh, you know, what concentration is that client? Uh, do you visit suppliers still? Um, how many of these suppliers are friends or family or colleagues? And you kind of build a picture. Uh, one thing that um, we're put off by, um, and I, you know, I can't speak for all business buyers, but one thing that we're put off by is is family-run businesses, uh, typically because if mum or dad sell, um, then brother son daughter cousin they're all going to leave you know they're you know in a family business they're all working for mom and pop sort of you know uh 
you know, organisation. So that's very comfortable. So if, you know, big, bad private or somebody else comes in, they typically don't stay, which means that I'm thinking, right, I've got recruitment fees to refill those roles. So we're, so we're just looking at how entangled the owner is into the operation of the business. Um, so, so those are the, some of the questions that we'd ask. And then we just observe, you know, and we, and we'd see, subtle things like you know the owner might come in when we're there and they might say oh you need to check this or do this you know and we'll look at who pays the electricity bill for example the utilities and 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 we just build up a picture you know over the course of months to say right we think this uh, this business relies too much on the owner so we might say right we might then choose to do an earn out and say well you need to hand everything over um your the business is very reliant on you uh, so as part of that earn out we might say well you know key things have got to happen for you to get that you know that that deferred element so it's um yeah there's a lot of moving parts to it but it but we tend to have somewhat of a gut feeling to start with, and then we can we sort of see things and, and and join the dots if that makes sense. It does. Would there be ever a situation where you would use both an earnout and vendor financing to close a deal? Being that the like to go back to our example of the million pound business where the seller agreed to finance 35% of the sale, would there ever be a situation where they would have seller financing that was contingent on them achieving a certain milestone or a certain thing, doing a certain thing, as well as an earnout that would be triggered by an achievement of a certain goal in the future. Again, it would be down to the um to to how reliant the business is on the owner, I guess. So uh we might say, well, I really like this business, but it really is reliant on the owner and they they're going to have to stay for at least two years so i'll say right how do i a key milestone might be um you you need to carry on acting as as the md or the president of this business uh, this business and you need to you know achieve certain milestones so it might be for us passing over certain key contracts you might have to employ so many people and, and train them up to sort of make yourself redundant. That might be one of the key tasks. So we'll turn a negative into a positive to say, we really want to buy this business because it works well with one of our other investments, but it's outside the scope of what we'd normally expect in terms of an owner operation, an owner operator outfit. So how do we make that work? So we'll use you know a combination of uh, earnouts, uh, deferred, uh, KPIs and that sort of thing, and and then it tends to work. The problem works itself out because if if they know, oh, I can I can get that extra three hundred and fifty thousand through making sure I don't need to do anything in the business. Well, that's the best thing in the world. I I just need to work on making myself redundant. So you kind of incentivize those those uh, those sellers into doing so, and then it solves the problem, doesn't it? Provided all goes well, which it tends to. Yeah. You mentioned occasionally, though, it doesn't. Um, Are you able to tell a story again, anonymous? We won't use any names where you misjudged the reliance the company had on its owner and what you sort of learned from that story or that example. yeah the same example the same example so um hmm. so it was the owner's job to do that so going back to the original example it was the owner's job to carry out these compliances and 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 these you know these regulatory um you know milestones and 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 checkboxes so obviously when they left um there was this big hole 
there. And, and this is where this disparity came from. So that they sort of had a, a, a right-hand man who, you know, they said, you know, they can deal with everything. Everything's fine. They can do the job. I don't need to be here. Um, and uh, it turned out we'd misjudged that. And this guy kind of was in over his head, bless him. Uh, and uh, and we had to resolve that with the previous owner who had to then, you know, help us resolve things. And, and obviously we had the dispute and everything else. So, uh, so yeah, it was a, that, the same example again, uh, John. Um, we have had another example as well. Um, where the uh, there was a certain contract or no getting paid for that contract on a regular basis was one of the um, there were two owners in this one uh, one of the owners was uh, involved in credit control and making sure that clients certain clients paid so whilst they had a credit control outfit and a whole accounts department this particular customer which actually was you know, one of the top two customers were completely looked after by the seller. They didn't, this didn't cross their mind and we wouldn't expect it to. Most sellers of businesses only ever sell once. They've not done it before. So, you know, we, we'd, we'd excuse that. But the problem for us was that um, for the first six months of owning that business, we hadn't been paid by this client at all. So we saw a, you know, a huge 15% um you know, hole in the revenue. So when we saw the management accounts after so long, uh, we saw, well, actually, you know, what what are the reasons for this? And digging down, well, it, it's just that this could, customer uh, hadn't paid. So we'd been billing them. So on the management accounts, it showed that, yes, we were, we were sort of booking the money, but we weren't buttoning up. We weren't doing that last mile of getting the cash in. So obviously the cash flow forecast was out by quite a bit so that was a that was a seller uh job essentially so we had to kind of patch that over so it's never it's never smooth sailing all the way through but that's i guess that's a better example actually of a of a, of a seller job that they had to do that just was left essentially um so you can't you can't catch them all and you can't get it right all the time yeah yeah i'd love to learn a little bit more about winch so um, Winch and Co. Your firm. I, I understand how a deal is structured and how a specific acquisition is financed. So we've, we've dealt with that. But what about Winch and Co.? Do you have outside investors who, uh, like a lot of private equity groups or venture capital organizations, will have like outside limited partners who invest? Um, do you have outside investors or do you own hundred percent or how, how does that, how, how have you structured your company? Yeah. So we don't have outside investors. So we, we, um, we use a lot of structured debt. So we, it'll be our own money. So my money and the firm's money, um, as the equity side. Um, and, uh, we work with the finance partners to kind of make up the rest. So, um, so it's a case of, I guess I'm the only LP and GP and all the rest of it. Um, all the so, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so we, so we are structured, um, as a private equity firm, but we don't have investors. So we're quite un unusual in that respect. And, uh, we're, we're quite entrepreneurial as well in the way that we work. So we're not, we don't, we don't normally sort of, uh, we don't do the typical private equity thing, uh, but we but we behave in the same way. So we'll use debt. We'll you know we'll work on uh, different financing packages and contribute our own equity. 
Uh, but that's where we sort of, that's where we differ from mainstream. I'm always curious about the sort of unique skill of an entrepreneur. I just did an interview with an entrepreneur who had a direct marketing agency and his, the way he characterized this unique skill is he called it his ninja skill, which was writing cold emails that he, I mean, he was better than anybody else in the company at writing cold emails. I'd be curious to use his sort of act or, you know, wording, what is your ninja skill? Like Nathan Winch, the person, not Winch the company, but what is Nathan's ninja skill? Oh, that's a difficult one, you know, because you don't want to, you don't want to blow your own trumpet, do you really? <laughs> um, I'm asking you to. <laughs> um, I guess, I guess it's, uh, I think deal making, you know, uh, fight sourcing and implementing really good deals. So it's okay. You can have all the capital in the world. You can have all the debt financing in the world, but unless you can find those good deals that you know you can turn around or, or, or add value to, then obviously it's worthless, isn't it? You know, so um, so so for me, I think it's probably uh, sourcing good deals. I think and and that that piece with the sellers um, where we can kind of get them to buy in. And I think the entrepreneurial nature of how we work typically is is the USP. So um, so yeah, I think I think sourcing good deals and uh, and the people based element of it, I tend to uh, enjoy. So yeah, um, yeah that, that's probably my skill. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful for sure. I'd love to dig further sourcing, of course, for those listeners who may not have heard that term used in that way, usually refers to finding businesses to buy effectively or sellers who want to sell. Um, how do you go about doing that, Nathan? Like what's your kind of secret to getting deal flow, sourcing these deals? Yeah, so um, so I guess it's a it's a multiple approach really. So so we we have an in house research team now. So um, so obviously that helps. But I guess earlier on when we were much smaller, um, it was a case of uh, good PR. So when we when we do a deal, we'll make sure we shout about it um, in you know industry relevant medias. So you know the magazines the the publications that are industry specific in the industry that we're targeting uh, so we can get our name out there so we get we get a primary source approach from people wanting to sell who perhaps haven't put their business up for sale but they want to get a, a reasonable sale in a you know reasonable amount of time so we get we get direct approaches off the back of that uh, we also do a lot of uh, old school letter marketing campaigns so we'll target the industry that we want um, our research team will will find, based off you know uh, industrial codes, the businesses that we want to find, um, and then we'll whittle it down by looking at the balance sheets. Again, doing the the, the analysis of what we can afford to buy and what we can't, uh, and then we'll we'll whittle that down to a list of uh, prospects, cold prospects that then we will. Uh, send you know written communications out to so typically letters we don't do emails i don't think we're particularly good at that so we avoid that um but letters uh we tend to get a good response so we might send uh, a thousand letters to a particular on a particular campaign uh we might get i don't know five to seven percent of those respond and then maybe one or two of the thousand we actually buy. So actually, for this for the size 
of the whilst that might seem like a small conversion rate for the size of the deal actually that's a great conversion rate because you know the costs um, of, of doing those campaigns are minuscule compared to what we can do with a good deal. So for me, that's that's success. Um, we, we're probably not doing it as efficiently as we could. You know, we can't all get things perfect, but for us, it works quite well. So old school letter marketing campaigns, uh, in-house research team and PR give us, for now, touch wood, uh, very good deal flow. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. What's your reaction to learn that an owner has engaged an M and A firm, and that they're running a process? They're they're actively selling their business. They're talking to multiple potential buyers. I've talked to some acquirers who are immediately out. They learn there's a a beauty pageant, a, a, it's an auction being structured, and they will immediately opt out of that deal. And then others understand that you know it's just a professional way to sell a company and and it's just part of doing business what's your reaction to learn that a seller has sort of is structuring a competitive you know auction for their company i think pretty much the same so we we want to be in a one horse race essentially so if so because we're quite savvy with our resources we have to do good deals we can't do okay deals so um so we tend to we tend to back out at that point um uh, we also see and again you know this is this tends to be a very small minority of 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 uh of, of you know commercial finance houses that 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 sell these businesses, but we typically see that things tend to be a little bit overpriced um, uh, in some cases, and so that kind of puts us off as well. So we we and the way we like to work with um, sellers is we want to work on a purchase price with the seller. So we tend not to just make offers. We'll say this is the balance sheet. So we'll tend to go, depending on the industry, you know, it might be a multiple of, of EBITDA or uh, plus the balance sheet assets, you know, less liabilities, whatever. And, and that might be a starting problem. We might say, well, what is this business worth to you? Um, or what, what money are you looking for to retire or exit this business or do something else? Because typically, John, what we found in our experience or in my experience is that the seller has a figure in their mind that they need to do X, Y, and Z. You know, they might want to move to the south of France or, you know, buy a villa, do whatever, and that costs X, and that might be their figure. So their figure might not even be related to the value of the business. So they'll say, well, I want I want 5 million um, or 10 million or whatever. And we'll say, right, okay, um, that's interesting. So we, we, so we're valuing the business with these assets. What do you think these assets are worth? Should we get them valued? And we don't, because what I don't want to do, and I think it helps having built a business, well, several businesses myself that I've sold, mm -hmm. I don't want to insult people because uh, there's a lot of goodwill in businesses as well. So yeah, you might have a business that's doing great, million EBITDA, you know, 10 million assets, fantastic. But the time to build that business and the goodwill that the seller has built, I mean, these are business owners, these are entrepreneurs, these are, you know, my people, my community. So, um, you know, it's it's their baby. So we tend to work with them to get to a price, which is why all of our offers are always accepted, which I don't think many um, buyers can can 
say really and the reason all of our offers are accepted is we don't make an offer we come to a price naturally with the seller um and uh it's not it's sometimes it's a compromise but we always get to a price working with the seller and of course we can't do that in a in a formal process how do you you mentioned you can't do okay deals you, you've got to do good deals how do you measure a good deal like what what is that constitute for you how would you describe a good deal so a good deal for me would be something that's affordable uh something we've already got the exit strategy for or we'll integrate it with another investment to create shareholder value um so whereas an okay deal might be we're getting this for a for a good price not much of a discount uh, we're getting it for a good price um, you know, we can hold on to it. It'll make some money. We can make a return. Um, and the reason I don't like okay deals is because to buy something uh, for pretty much market value to make a return, I could just buy some real estate or I could just buy, you know, some bonds or, you know, invest in a hedge fund or another private equity firm. Whereas a, a good deal or a great deal is one where we can make multiples um, off of what we invest, so so we're not looking to make long term, um, you know, slightly market beating return on investment. We're looking to do big uh, profit making activity, um, and I can confidently say that, you know, without making it sound like we're uh, sort of you know drilling down sellers on price. What I mean by that is we'll we'll pay a price the seller is happy to accept, and through our means which a seller won't have is we might be able to consolidate it with something else we own or we might have a contact that wants to buy this after we do x y and z which may require capex so it's a good deal for everyone so so i want to i want to buy those businesses where i know i can do that or there's some activity where we'll make multiples and multiples of profit not just a long-term set roi you know if if that makes sense as well yeah, yeah. How long do you hold the typical business for? Like, what's your plan? Uh, it's normally three to five years. Um, although, if something's very good, um, you know, and it's it's making good money, we might hold on to it for longer. Um, you know, if it's a let's say a cash cow, for want of a better phrase, we might hold on to it for longer because obviously we have to fund our operation as well, uh, John. So, um, if you look at it completely objectively. Um, my company actually doesn't make any money. You know, we have to buy something and sell it to make money. Our operation doesn't make any money. So we have to cover those costs, which are relatively high. Um, so sometimes we might hold on to things to to help contribute towards that cost, um, you know, the ongoing costs. Um, so we might hold things for longer. But yeah, it's around, the, I'd say, no longer than five years, typically. Got it. Got it. That's super helpful. Well, I, look, I know your time is precious and I want to be respectful. This has been super helpful. It really has illuminated for me a lot of uh, the inner machinations of, of the, the, a deal and how it's structured and how you think about it. And, and I'm really grateful for you spending the time you have. Where, if people want to learn more about you, the company, where would they go? What's the best sort of um, So our website is winchandco.com. So that's W-I-N-C-H-A-N-D-C-O.com. Uh, so that's our business. You can learn more and more about the investments we've got. 
Um, and, you know, if anybody is interested in selling their business or, or retiring, then obviously we, we want to chat. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much us. We're uh, we're friendly. Um, we're not kind of, you know, your typical private equity, everybody's in suit sort of thing. So um, we tend to approach it entrepreneurially, which is what I think our sellers like as well, John, actually. Um, we did have one particular seller uh, where he liked the fact that when he met my management team, they were sort of smart casual. And he said if they'd have been in suits, he probably wouldn't have sold to us, which was very interesting, actually. <laughs> so, um, you know, these tend to be <laughs> these tend to be uh, they tend to be grafters, you know, really hard workers. So um, for them to be approached by people in suits, I, I don't know, maybe it's something I mean, I've. I, I'm partial to a suit now and again. Don't get me wrong, um, but uh, but yeah, we, we're we're kind of relaxed, and I think that's what sellers like as well. Yeah, yeah, I would think uh, I would think so. And then, what about on social media? Is is LinkedIn the best place to reach out? Or? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, and then my uh, social media handle is uh, Nathan J Winch, so the letter J. Um, you find me on most channels there as well. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not hard to find. Put it that way, <laughs> and we'll put all that in the show notes at builttheself.com. Nathan, thank you for doing this. Lovely, thank you, John. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Nathan Winch. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including definitions for some of the more technical terms used, Nathan's investment criteria and a link to the press release of his first sale of his company, Winch Pharma, head over to the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Nathan was actually a nomination to be on the podcast. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, just like Nathan, then you can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you have the chance to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to the community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.